You are now listening to the Bayshore Community Church Podcast. Our mission is to connect to God, connect to people, and to serve the community. Thank you for joining us today and wherever you are listening. We hope that this message inspires you, encourages you, and transforms you. Our prayer is that this is just the beginning of a conversation between you and Jesus. Enjoy the message. Well, good morning, Bayshore. Good to see everybody. I'm Pastor Danny. If you're new to Bayshore, thank you so much for being with us today. We had a great time of worship, and I want us to welcome our Femic Island campus right now. Hello, everybody. Let's give our Femic Island campus a big hand. Thank you for joining us right now. So glad that they are with us and everybody that's online that's watching. And we're so glad that you're here, and congratulations to the Next Step graduates that went to class yesterday. Thank you so much for going through that and finding your place to serve here at Bayshore. We're in a series called uh, Showdown in Egypt, and we're looking at the dynamics that happened between Moses and Pharaoh. We're building up to the big miracles that happened between uh, Moses and Pharaoh and how the children of Israel got out of Egypt, and we're looking for principles in this section of scripture to teach us more about life, how we can live successfully. One of the things we love to do at here at Bayshore is go through sections of scripture so we learn more about the scriptures and also see how those things work in our life. What the big idea, what happened in Exodus, when you read the book of Exodus, the children of Israel, actually just a little family of 70 people, went down to Egypt 430 years before Exodus comes on the scene. And uh, they went there because of a famine. There was a problem, a difficulty, and so they went to Egypt. Joseph's uh, son had already been sent there by providence and God's sovereignty and provided for them in the midst of the famine. And then the people of Israel grew from 70 to 2 million. And so there's this big growing population of Jewish people in Egypt that the Pharaoh is threatened by. And it's so interesting that the Jewish people have always been persecuted. I mean, when you think about the Holocaust, uh, we're watching a great uh, Netflix series right now. I think it's called Little Light about the Holocaust and Anne Frank. Uh, and you know, you think about the Holocaust, it's, it was all precursored in the Bible where the Jews were persecuted time and time again. The whole book of Esther is about that. So the children of Israel being persecuted by the Pharaoh, and of course God raises up Moses. And we talked last week about Moses' birth, how he was born, and how he came on the scene. Uh, incredible scripture, important scripture. When you think about Moses, Moses and Jesus parallel each other. A lot of the things that you see in Moses' life are identical to what happened in Jesus' life. And when you think about uh, the book of Matthew, the book of Matthew is based on Jesus' story as it connects to Moses. So interesting. But there's one scripture that you really want to tuck in your heart when you think about Moses. Deuteronomy 18:15 says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet. This is Moses speaking, by the way. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites, you must listen to him. So Moses is prophesying that in the future, in the far future, is coming a prophet just like himself, and you better listen to him because he's the ultimate prophet. So let me, let's read the text today that we're going to be looking at. That's in Exodus chapter 2, verses 11 through 25. We may stop a little short of that, but we're going to begin in verse 11. Exodus 11, 2, 11. Uh, through 25. One day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people, looking this way and that, and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. 
He asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. Then Pharaoh heard of this. He tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian where he sat down by a well. Now a priest of Midian had seven daughters and they had come to draw water and fill the troughs to water their father's flock. Some shepherds came also and drove them away, but Moses got up and came to their rescue and watered their flock. When the girls returned to Ruel, their father asked him, why did you return so early today? They answered, an Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. And where is he, Ruel asked his daughters. Why did you leave him? Uh, invite him to have him something to eat. Moses agreed to stay with the man who gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. Zipporah gave birth to a son and Moses named him Gershom saying, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The, father, the, 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 the Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. And God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and with Jacob. So he looked on the Israelites who was concerned about them. So last week when we left off, Moses was a baby. And now, as we pick up in verse 11, he's now 40 years old. And what's he been doing in that time for the last 40 years? Well, we know from the book of Acts and Stephen's sermon that he's being educated in all the ways of Egypt. He's learning to speak uh, Egyptian. He's learning uh, hieroglyphics. He's learning about mathematics. He's learning about music. He's becoming a refined, educated Egyptian, and uh, there's a great uh, church, uh, a great Jewish historian uh, that uh, speaks of this, that Moses was well, well educated and refined. God is preparing him to understand Egypt so he can minister to Egypt. Very important principle there. But we see that he has grown up. It says in verse 11, one day after Moses had grown up, after he'd grown up, I want you to think about that a little bit. He was a baby in verse 10 and verse 11, he's 40 years old. And I want to pause in this message this morning to talk about the brevity of our children, our children as they're with us. Uh, how many are parents? You have children. Everybody, if you have children, raise your hands. Here's the thing I think that this little text, it's not the primary purpose of the text, but I think it has such an interesting thing when I read the text. One day after Moses had grown up, I want you to know that your kids, if you're raising kids right now, and you're a millennial and you got little kids at home, I want you to know that your kids are growing up. They're growing up. Those of us that are grandparents, now let me ask you this, everybody, family, God, everybody here, how many are grandparents? Just raise your hand. And uh, your grandparents, any great-grandparents here? Just raise your hand. We some great-grandparents here. Got some in the back there. Well, here's the thing about raising children. Children grow up before you realize it. You bring them home from the hospital, you put them in that little blanket, you bring them home, and before you know it, you're sitting at graduation or you're sitting at a wedding where they have grown up, and all of a sudden, just like that. I remember uh, Karen and I, when we uh, bought our first house, our boys were, I think Tim was six, Joel was five, and uh, we're excited, a little tiny house, little three-bedroom rancher not too far from here. 
and we're excited, had our first house. And I remember the day we moved in here. There's a picture of a house. I think that's the first house that we grew in, uh, grew up, uh, that my boys grew up in. We lived there for 15 years, little tiny house. And uh, when we moved into that house, as I mentioned, Tim was six, Joel was five. And I remember that first day they came in that house and they're running down the hallway looking for the, the former occupants of the house had little boys and they had, when we toured the house, they had uh, toys in the bedroom and my boys ran down and thought the toys would still be there. Well, they took them with them, obviously. First thing I did after we got everything moved in is I hung a tire in the backyard on a tree to swing my boys in that tire put a basketball goal we played basketball baseball in the backyard we played football in the front yard we had 15 christmases there we hung out i mean that was where they you know we helped them get ready for school that's where we ate our dinners together and we lived life for 15 years and i remember when we moved out of the house i was having a midlife crisis so we got a bigger house so we built this house really nice house where we live now and we're moving out. I took a week off uh, from uh, church, from my work, and a week off to move. And it took me a whole week to pack everything in trucks to move it to the new house. Almost done. And I pulled down the, uh, the little attic door and emptied the attic out. It filled the house back up. <laughs> so I'm moving everything out, and I'm making the last load. Joel and Karen had already gone to the new house. And Tim and I had the last pickup load. The last pickup load before that was it. We were done. So we get in the truck together. He's sweaty. I'm sweaty. He's 21 years old now. He was six, and now it's been 15 years. Now he's 21 years old. He's in college. And we're backing out in my dad's pickup, and I see the, I see the hose, the garden hose we left attached to the front of the house. I said, Tim, go get that hose. He pops out of the truck, he runs up there, and he bends over to unscrew that hose. Big hairy back. <laughs> now a man. And I had a moment. I had an epiphany that took me back 15 years when we moved in that house when he was a little boy. And just like that, he had grown up. The Bible says that Moses grew up. So if you're a parent today, I want to encourage you to seize the moment, spend time with your kids, relate to your kids, love your kids, because they are going to grow up. Here's what the deal is. From the time you bring your little baby home from the hospital, I remember when we brought Tim home from the hospital. He was born in Pensacola, Florida, Sacred Heart Hospital, and, and uh, we put him in that little car seat. Remember how car seats used to be? They weren't really certified or anything. I mean, it was just basically kids in the back holding on to a rope. I mean, that's... <laughs> now you've got to be an engineer to put those things in, you know? And I remember driving home with him in the uh, from the hospital, Karen in the front seat, and we had that little baby in the back and his little head like a bobber, you know, going around. And we're just driving so carefully. But from the time you bring your kids home from the hospital to the time they turn 18, when they go to college, you have 936 weeks. 936 weeks. Now, when you think about it this way, I want you to think about a jar full of marbles. 
a jar full of marbles and you got 36 or 936 marbles in that jar. When your kid turns nine years old, you've already used up half of your marbles and you've used up 468 weeks, 468 marbles or 468 weeks of the 936 weeks you have with them. That means you only have 312 marbles left until they get their driver's license. And then you just have two summers left before they move away. If you're a young parent, I just want to say to you, you're losing your marbles. <laughs> you are losing your marbles. So make sure that you capture the moments with your kids Spend time with them. I was eating uh, the other day. Karen and I were having dinner with a wonderful couple from uh, Bayshore, Femic Island, wonderful people that we love, and spent some time with them. We were at Evo's. I don't know if you've ever eaten at Evo's across from the hospital in Salisbury. They have great burgers there, and we were eating there. And, uh, and as we came out from our dinner, I saw a father sitting with a little girl at the picnic table there. They were eating outside, and this cute little girl, little pigtails, little beautiful dress and she's sitting there with her dad maybe he's a single dad maybe a divorced dad spending time with his daughter and he had in his hand his cell phone he'd look at that cell phone he'd glance at her and then he'd look at that cell phone and we just watched him for a while and he kept looking at that cell phone and let me tell you something. There's something more important in this world than our cell phones. Can you say a big amen? If you're a parent, make sure you turn that daggone thing off and look at your kids. Amen? Do you know there's, a, there's cell phone addictions now? There's a thing called nomophobia. Nomophobia is the fear of being without a mobile device. There are 3.8 billion smartphone users in this world. And in the last decade we received 427% more messages and notifications than we did a decade ago. We also send 278% more text. Baylor University did a study and they found out that college girls in, in university spend no less than 10 hours a day on their cell phones and young men spend almost eight hours on their cell phones, which is impacting academic performance. And I see this all the time when I'm in restaurants and I, you know, I have a cell phone, I'm on Facebook, I don't, I'm not on Twitter anymore, I, I, I try to minimize that, but there is an addiction with these cell phones and it's not really helping our kids. Your kids need you to look them in the eye, be present, be in, the, in their world and look at them and turn your cell phone off so you can spend some time with them. That's an important thing. And so when you think about your kids, you got 936 marbles. And every day that is going by a little bit at a time. So make sure you spend some time with them. I was at the River uh, Soccer uh, League a couple weeks ago watching my granddaughter Nora play soccer. And Nixon had had a game earlier than that. We try to go every Saturday. We didn't get to go yesterday, but most Saturdays we go and watch our grandkids and they're looking for us and we love being there. And I looked across the field and there was a uh, Fenwick Island uh, dad out there that was with his kids and he was coaching the team. And I thought about when I used to coach soccer and when I used to coach basketball, 
And when I got beyond my expertise, I went and made sure I was at every basketball game, every soccer game. And one of the most important things you can do, millennials, as you're raising your kids, make sure that you're present and spend time with them because they need you to be with them. Nobody can take your place. Nobody at church, nobody at school, the church partners with you, but your presence with them makes a world of difference. Can you say big amen? Here's what Dr. Seuss says. Dr. Seuss says this. He said, sometimes... You will never know the value of a moment until it becomes a memory. Sometimes you will never know the value of a moment until it becomes a memory. And then this Polish proverb says, you have a lifetime to work, but your children are only young once. Now, here's the benefit of spending time with your kids. As it says, Moses grew up. Moses was a little baby. Then he was a man. Moses was a little infant, and now he was an adult. The scripture passes over, shows us the quickness of a child's growth. Here's the benefit of spending time with your kids. I don't believe, now this is a generalization. I don't believe your kids when they're adolescents have to go through an incredible rebellious period. Now sometimes they do and you can do everything right. But I don't believe that that's necessarily true. People have accepted the fact that your kids are going to go wild. They're going to be crazy when they're teenagers. And you're going to have this terrible, terrible experience when your kids get into that adolescent stage. And I don't think that's necessarily has to be the truth. Our boys did not do that. We didn't have, have this big rebellion. The most uh, significant thing we have, they were campaigning for tattoos, for tattoos. And we are not against tattoos. In fact, I'd get one if it didn't hurt so much. So I'm not against tattoos. <laughs> and they wanted tattoos in the worst kind of way and we said well listen you can get a tattoo as soon as your grandfather dies that's the deal <laughs> we knew it would break his heart if you got a tattoo so he died and they I don't know they maybe they had tattoos I don't know but here's the thing when you spend time with your kids when they're little you build a foundation for those turbulent years when they become adolescents and here's how it works there's this principle, maximizing the relationship with your kids when they're young minimizes relationship rebellion later. Maximizing the relationship with your kids when they are young minimizes the rebellion later. Would you say it with me? Maximizing the relationship with your kids when they are young minimizes the rebellion later. So your kids, when they're adolescents, have a built-in mechanism to begin to pull away from you, and that's natural. But it doesn't mean that they have to be rebellious. Here's what uh, John Maxwell used to use this. I'm not sure where this came from originally. Rules minus relationship equals rebellion. Rules minus relationship equals rebellion. So... If you haven't built a significant relationship when your kids are young and when they become adolescents and they're pushing the boundaries and you begin to put the rules on them, if you haven't had the foundation of the relationship, that's going to create rebellion. Rules minus relationship equals rebellion. Or here's the positive model. Rules plus relationship equals respect. Rules plus relationship equals respect. 
So that's an important principle. So uh, those of you that are parents and you're in that stage, that's, that points for you. So Moses grew up. Then the next thing we see is Moses was drawn to his own people. Moses was drawn to his own people. It says when he was 40 years old, verse 11, one day after Moses had grown up, he went out where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian being a Hebrew, one of his own people. I want you to see this, that Moses... When he became 40 in Acts chapter 7, Stephen's sermon on Moses emphasizes this, that when Moses turned 40, there was a drawing in his heart toward his own people, his own people. There's an incredible human principle there. The principle is, is that we all long to belong. We all long to belong. There's something in the human heart that we are drawn to family. That's why on uh, holidays, when you have a holiday, the airports are full, the roads are full of people going to see their loved ones. AA, AAA estimates about 55 million Americans travel over 50 miles from home for the Thanksgiving holiday compared to nearly 120 million traveling during Christmas and New Year's. So it says Moses went out to his own people. There's something inherent about being drawn to your family, and there's something natural about that. And, and so here's the deal, you know, that's part of how God wired us. We're wired to go toward our family. We have a desire to be with family. And let me ask you this here this morning. How many have any weird people in your family? Just raise your hand. Raise your hand if you have any weird people in your family. If you're not raising your hand and you don't have any weird people in your family, you are the weird person. <laughs> we all have weird people in our family. And uh, so if you have toxic people in your family, you know, toxic relationships, you love people from a distance. You love them from a distance. People that are healthy and normal and everybody's dysfunctional to a degree, obviously being drawn to your family is a healthy thing. But if you have toxic people, you have to love them from a distance. And that's a principle there that we see in the story. But Moses was drawn to his own people and he went to them. And here's the thing about what this pictures. I said that Moses was a lot like Jesus. Uh, Moses is a symbol of Jesus, what Jesus is like. Moses leaves his palace. He's given this incredible position in society where he lives in, with Pharaoh. He lives in the palace. He doesn't want for anything. He probably sleeps on silk sheets. He's got, you know, the finest clothes. He's got the finest chariots. He's got everything. He is living in luxury, but he leaves that position of luxury in order to be with his people. And the Bible says in the book of Hebrews that he chose to be mistreated with the people of God rather to enjoy the pleasures of Egypt. So what does that teach us about Jesus? What does that teach us about what is Moses picturing us? What is he giving a picture of? He's giving us a picture of how Jesus left glory he had this prerogative with God where he was co-equal with the Father, eternally uh, in fellowship with his Father, living in the glories of heaven. And he left that position, the book of Philippians says, in order to identify with us so that we could have a relationship with him. 
So what we have in the story of Moses is we have a picture of the incarnation. The word incarnation, that's a theological word that simply means, and you can use it, you know, this week, hey, I want to talk to you about the incarnation. You can impress somebody. The incarnation, carne is flesh. Jesus came in the flesh to identify with us. And so when Moses came to identify with his people, when he left the palace and came to identify with his people, he learned to suffer with the people. He experienced the suffering that they were in. He was banished from Egypt and he had to live in, in exile. And so we see a picture of that. And here's what you need to take comfort. Why does that matter to you? What it means to us is that when Jesus came to this earth, the book of Hebrew teaches this principle that he became a perfect high priest, that there's nothing that you've experienced, there's nothing that I've experienced, there's nothing that we've gone through that our high priest has not also felt and gone through. I was uh, experienced some rejection once from, uh, from someone that was close to me. And I was feeling grief about that. And I remember one day riding down the road feeling the sadness of that rejection and that insensitivity that was expressed toward me. And it's what you've experienced. It's what we all experienced. And I was experiencing that. And as I was riding down the road, the Lord reminded me that he's my high priest and he knows exactly what I feel because he has been rejected. He's gone through people that loved him. His, one of his closest disciples who ate with him at the table, who was right beside him taking care of the money, betrayed him with a kiss. So there's nothing that you've experienced. There's nothing you've gone through that Jesus has not experienced too. So when I get on my knees to pray and I call out to the God of heaven, when I call out to Jesus, I have a high priest that looks at me with understanding eyes. He knows exactly what I've gone through. He knows exactly what I've experienced. If you've lost a loved one, some of you here, you've lost a loved one. You know, you know how sad that makes your heart feel. Do you know that scholars believe that Joseph, the guardian father of Jesus, died sometime in Jesus' childhood. The reason they surmise that is because Joseph mysteriously disappears out of the narrative of the gospel. The last time we see him, when Jesus was 12 years old, we never see him again. So probably sometime during Jesus' childhood, <clears throat> this little boy Jesus, this little adolescent Jesus, stood in a next to a beer, next to a, a, a coffin with tears rolling down his face as he looked at the body of the man who taught him how to do carpentry work. Jesus lost a friend. He stood at the grave of Lazarus and he stood at the grave of Lazarus and tears rolled down his face. He wept because that was his friend. If you've been tempted, if you've been struggled, the Bible says in Isaiah chapter 53, he was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Every experience that we've experienced, he's experienced. And so Moses left the palace. He left his luxury. He left this incredible place of luxury to come down into the mud of the brick pits to experience what his people went through. When I first came here um, a number of years ago, um, 
I, I joined the fire company. And the reason I joined the fire company is I wanted to meet people and uh, I didn't know anybody here. So I joined the Gumbera Fire Company down the road and I had to go to some classes and I had to go to meetings and they sent me away to fire school. And, uh, and I remember, you know, I wasn't a full fireman yet, but, you know, I was going to fight fires with them and uh, they didn't have me a uniform yet. And I was, you know, hanging on to the back of those trucks. One night we were riding to a fire. We hit a, we hit a bump and I mean, I went airborne. My, I'm just hanging by the, I'm hanging by the bar. My feet are dangling on the edge there, just hanging on. But when I became a fireman, before I got my own uniform, one, one day there fire whistle went off and I, I got in my car, I ran down there and they told me to pick out any uh, fire uniform that was vacant that they thought would fit me. And so I remember putting on a pair of boots, a pair of boots, um, you pull the, the pants up and you've got the coat and I put on these boots that were about the same size as my feet and the boots were wet inside because the last fireman that had wore those boots had been to a fire and those boots were full of wetness. And I got on that truck and I went to the fire and did my deal. And when Jesus came to this earth, he stepped into the wet boots of humankind. He put your boots on. He put your life on and he experienced exactly what you've experienced. I want you to say this with me as we move on to the next point. I want you to say this with me. Say this with me. There is nothing in my life that my high priest has not experienced. And I love that principle in the Hebrews, the book of Hebrews. So we see that in the story. We see that Moses grew up. We see number two, he was drawn to his people and, and the drawn to this people was he identified with the people. And we also, one of the things that happens to you and I, when we become Christians, we're drawn to our spiritual family. That's a part of what happens. And then we see finally, as we, we end today, we see that Moses, uh, he murders the Egyptian there in the story. Uh, and that's a very interesting part of the story. And uh, this, is, this represents Moses' early failure. This represents Moses' early failure. And, and he's, he knows, according to what Acts chapter 7 says, Moses knows that he's called to deliver the people of Israel, and it says in Acts chapter 7, he thought that they would know that he was there to deliver them, and yet they didn't see him. And again, another picture of Jesus where it says in John chapter 1, verse 11, he came to his own, and his own did not receive him. So you see that picture. And so Moses kills the Egyptian. And here's the thing about Moses Moses responds strongly to injustice. When he sees injustice, when he sees something that's out of line, when he sees something that's not fair, later in the story we read today about when he saw the shepherds, the oppressive shepherds taking the, the well from, the, uh, from Jethro's daughters, that he came and he defended those poor defenseless girls to help them get water for their flock. So Moses always responds to injustice. He's a, he's a man that is enraged by injustice. He's enraged by injustice. Here's the thing in this part of the story. He kills, he kills an Egyptian. We don't know how he did it. We don't know if he strangled the Egyptian. He probably had a sword. Maybe he slew him with a sword. And then he buried him in the sand. 
And that's the deal about what we see in this part of the story is that Moses had a wrong attitude about how God was going to deliver his people out of Egypt. And God was not going to use militant force to achieve his purposes. God was not going to use militant force to achieve his purpose. And here's the thing we need to remember as followers of Christ, and one of the things the Bible teaches, New Testament teaches, is that the how God established his kingdom, his kingdom is not through militant force, not through anger, not through rage, not through violence, but the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're mighty to the pulling down of strongholds. It says in 2 Corinthians, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're mighty to the pulling down of strongholds. I watched the movie with Mel Gibson this week because uh, I thought of it when I was preparing the sermon. I thought about the movie, The Patriot. I don't know if you've ever seen The Patriot. Uh, Benjamin Martin is a farmer who has fought in the in, uh, French Indian War. And, you know, one of his sons was killed and his other son was taken captive by the British. And, and, and uh, Benjamin Martin, who has become a bit of a pacifist, was, was, not, uh, was not wanting to uh, get involved in the war. And uh, one of his sons was killed. And then, then he, all this anger is unleashed out of Benjamin Martin. And, of course, he and his sons kill all these British as they're going down a trail. And then Benjamin Martin, he, he goes into this rage with the tomahawk. He throws the tomahawk in the back of the running British soldiers, and then he massacres him as his sons watch. And when I think about what did Moses do, what did Moses do? How did he kill that Egyptian? Was it anger? The Bible says in the book of James that man's anger does not achieve the righteous, uh, the righteous life that God desires. God is not going to use militant anger to establish his kingdom on this planet. He's not going to use rage. He's not going to use human rage. He's not going to do that. That's not how he operates. And rather, he's going to bring to his rescue, he's going to bring Moses into Egypt 40 years later with a humble rod and through that rod, he's going to produce incredible miracles. And it's not by the arm of flesh. It's not by the militant might of, of Moses. It's not through his anger. It's not through his, his rage, his passion. But it's through the humility of Moses as he holds up the rod. And the miracle power of God is going to work through that rod. So the application is this. And is this applicable to us? Well, if you go back in church history, you got the, you got the uh, Crusades. You got in 1099 AD where the Pope said, let's go reclaim the Holy Land from the, uh, the infidels. And so the institutional church goes with sword in hand, killing babies, killing innocent people, to reclaim the land of Jerusalem. So when you read that in church history, you know, we've always, as Christians, we got a little bit of a red face um, because, you know, hey, that's an embarrassing part of history. But here's the thing. When you have disenfranchised people in a society and you get somebody with a raging, angry voice in that culture, people can be attracted to that. In 1937, 
When Adolf Hitler stood up, if you listen to Adolf Hitler's speeches, full of rage, full of anger, full of frustration, Hitler is speaking all these horrible things. And why did the German people respond to that? Because they had been treated poorly at Versailles, the end of uh, World War I, and they weren't even invited to the, uh, to the peace table. And so that simmering, disenfranchised group of people with an angry voice spoke to that. And they were attracted to that. The kingdom of God does not come by violence. The kingdom of God does not come by military might. The kingdom of God does not come by human anger. So in our own country, when we had the storming of the Capitol of January 6th and all that, we all have opinions about that. But let me tell you something. That is not the way that the Lord does things. That is not the way that the Lord does things. When Moses, in anger and rage, killed that Egyptian... He buried him in the sand. God said, that's not at all what I'm about, Moses. That's not how we're going to do this. I'm going to send you away for 40 years, and you're going to tend sheep, and you're going to talk to me on the mountain, and you're going to become a meek man, a man not filled with anger, a man not filled with rage, and you're going to walk into Egypt under my anointing and under my power and under my grace, and you're going to do things in the spirit of the kingdom of God. And the disciples of Jesus were constantly saying, Jesus, you know, when are we going to raise up an army? And the zealots were, when are we going to raise up an army? And Jesus said to his, his, uh, you know, his uh, accuser, Pilate, in, in John chapter 18, if my kingdom were, were of this world... If my kingdom were of this world, I would call my servants to fight, but my kingdom is not of this world. The kingdom of God is not produced by militancy. And when you're sharing your faith with liberal people in our culture, we walk with gentleness, we walk with grace, we're not militant because God does not use that method to establish his kingdom. Say this with me. God's kingdom doesn't come by human force or human anger, but by the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit. Don't get caught up in that. Don't get caught up in that in the, in the years to come. Do not get caught up in that. Say this with me. Here's what this is, second... Corinthians 11, I think. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they are strong to the pulling down of strongholds. Would you lift your hands to the Lord? I want you to pray the kingdom of God to come. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Father God, we're not going to be like Moses bludgeoning heads and killing people, walking in militancy. That's not the spirit of your kingdom. God, we pray in the name of Jesus as we, as we 
pray over our country, as we pray over our state, as we pray over our community, as we pray over everything that's around us, Lord. We thank you that the weapons we fight with are weapons of great power. We pray your kingdom come, your love to fill our schools, your love to fill our government, your love to fill our community, your love to fill our relationships and our neighbor, with our neighbors. We pray that the spirit of the Lord will be upon us, that we'll walk in the weaponry that you've given us. We pray your blessing on our country. Say this with me. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, Father, I pray over the parents in our churches, the young parents that are raising kids right now. We pray that you'll help them to be focused this week, help them to tune into their kids and help us to raise a new generation of kids that have their hearts full of love from their mom and dad. We ask your blessing on us in Jesus' name. And everybody said amen and amen. Thank you so much for joining us on the Bayshore Podcast. I want to encourage you to take this message you just received and allow it to go deep into your soul and let Jesus do the deep work that only he can do. A special thanks to everyone that gives generously to Bayshore. It's because of you that this ministry is possible, creating life change all over the world. You can be a part of spreading the message around the world by going to bayshore.online and clicking give. For all things Bayshore, visit bayshore.online to find out what your next step may be. You can subscribe right here and share this podcast with your friends and family. Thank you again for listening. God bless you.